Well, good morning again. It's good to be here and to have the privilege and joy of opening the scriptures uh, with you again this morning. We're going to read this morning the whole of the Ten Commandments, so if you have your Bibles, please read along with me. Exodus chapter 20, and we'll commence at verse 1, going right through to the end of verse 17. Exodus chapter 20, commencing at verse 1. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or female servant or your cattle or your sojourners or the sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Verse 12. Honour your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbour You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Trust God will add a blessing uh, to his holy word that is without error this morning. Well, we're coming into land this morning on the Tenth Commandment series And we'll be looking specifically at the 10th commandment in which begins, Thou shalt not covet. As you may have noticed, for those who have been here, unlike the previous nine commandments, this commandment focuses on an inward attitude and not on any specific outward action. All the other commandments can be visibly enforced and regulated, but not this commandment. Not this commandment. The reason being is that the sin of coveting is a sin of the heart, which is invisible in its internal workings. But we know, as I heard my daughter-in-law recently reprimanding and teaching one of her children, She said, God is everywhere and nothing was hidden from him. Remember that. That's a good thing for a mother to teach her child, isn't it? And may I add to that, God not only sees every external thing and action, but he also searches our hearts 
and can see our covetousness. Although invisible to one another, it is true that if coveting is not stopped in the heart, it will break out and become visible in some kind of behavior at some stage. In other words, a coveting attitude that is not stopped will develop into coveting actions. This 10th commandment not only prohibits coveting, but it also shows a commonality, can I say, with all the other commandments, the other nine. And that is, all the commandments are obeyed or disobeyed primarily in the heart of a person. In other words, this command shows us that true obedience is not complete and satisfying to God without obedience from the heart. This command shows us that the Ten Commandments are not only about loving God, about loving our neighbor outwardly, tangibly, and practically, they are also about how our hearts are before God. Hence, all the commandments, can we say, have this inward focus about them. None of the commands can be merely kept outwardly in order to please God because our obedience to them must be from the heart. Jesus really extrapolated that beautifully in the Sermon on the Mount, right? And let me go to one that you all know. He stands there and he teaches his disciples and all those others who are listening on. He says, you have said that you shall not commit adultery. Quoting the law. But I say unto you, if any man looks on a woman with lust in his heart, he has committed adultery already. See the point? So as the Ten Commands are to be obeyed from a heart that longs to please God, we must also see that breaching or breaking these commands comes from a heart that chooses to rebel against God. So it works both ways. You see, folks, this command teaches us that God is concerned what? He's concerned about the condition of our hearts before he is concerned about our actions. We get it all back to front, don't we? We think it's all about the things that we can see and do and watch other people, but it's the heart that God is concerned because that's where actions spring from. Jesus teaches this. He says in Luke chapter 6, verse 4, 45. A good man brings good things out of, a good, of the good stored up in his heart and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart for the mouth speaks that which his heart is full of. You know, many think it's all about the doing, about the good behavior, but God is not interested in mere outward shows of good relationships and healthy communities. No, no. If they are not motivated from a heart that is made right before him. This is where we see the link between relationships with God and with one another as we've been drawing out between the first table of the law, which is all about our relationship with God. The second table of the law from, verse, from commandment 5 onwards is, is all about our relationships with one another, which we're dealing with today. In other words, if your relationship not is right with, not right with God 
only the first table of the law. Don't think just keeping the second table with the law, it's going to be all honky-dory. No way. God is interested in the heart. And so in this 10th commandment, God highlights this most important matter. And so what we're going to do, as we've done in the past, we will look at the prohibition of this commandment and what it means, and then we will look at the positive prescription that is implied in this command. And so firstly, we'll look at the prohibition. Do not covet. So right at the outset, being good Bible scholars, there's several things that we need to observe in this commandment. Let me read it to you again. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. First notice that you shall not covet is stated two times in this relatively small verse. And whenever you get repetition, as I said, being good Bible students, whenever you get repetition, it's God's way of making sure that the reader doesn't miss the point. It's not just there because God is stuttering or anything like that. No, no, he puts it there because his word is without error. He wants you to take notice of something especially. You shall not covet. Just in case you missed it, he repeats it. We need that, folks. You know that? We need repeated statements in the Bible. We see it often all the way through. He repeats. So why are you repeating this? We need this because we often deny and find excuses for the sum of the sins that we have committed, but even though we know that we're guilty of. We kind of push them to the background, right? We make deals, as it were, uh, with ourselves or with the world or even try and make deals with God. And we, we need this repetition. You know, like a child who blatantly denies his guilt, even though being caught red-handed with his hand in the biscuit tin and standing on a chair in front of the biscuit cupboard. And so little Johnny's mum asks, what are you doing? Ah, nothing. He says so easily as crumbs are dripping down his chin. Folks, as adults, we do also this, right? No, not with a biscuit tin, I hope. Not with a biscuit tin, but with many other things. Hi, brother, how's your marriage going lately? Oh, fine, fine, everything's good. Yeah, yeah, really good. When he knows deep down within, he and his wife are way out of step with the Lord and with one another. Or, Or maybe, how's your walk with your Lord lately? Oh, yeah, yeah, fine, yeah, that's all all good, all good, when it really is not. You see, what I want to point out here is we often deflect these penetrating questions because no one else can prove otherwise. And so God says twice over, you shall not covet because he knows our deceitful hearts will easily supply an excuse when this sin hits us. A second aspect of this command is that you can count seven things that we're not told to covet. Let me go over them and you can count them as I read. You're not to covet your neighbor's house. You're not to covet your neighbor's wife his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey. And then conclusively, just in case you didn't get it all, he says, anything that belongs to your neighbor. There's seven things. Now, 
I'm not a great one for biblical numerology, but you have to understand that there are times when God uses numbers to get our attention. For instance, the number 40 speaks of judgment all the way through the scriptures. Rain, 40 days and 40 nights. We think of the New Testament equivalent, 40 days Jesus was in the wilderness being tested by Satan. It was a time of judgment. And so seven also pops up frequently and seventh in the Hebrew expresses a completeness. It means anything and everything that belongs to our neighbor, you are not to cover. That's what it means here. Seven things. Thirdly, just for observation, notice that neighbor is mentioned three times. And this is vital because it helps us understand what is being forbidden here in this commandment. The word covet you sh- in, the, in the sentence, you shall not covet, is also a word, by the way, that can be used in a good way. Depending on the context, because the word by itself simply means desire and can be translated desire, desire, covet, covet, desire. It can go both ways. So it should be clear that God is not saying here, you shall not desire, because if that was the case, we'd all be in trouble, right? (laughs) So the context which the word is set in dictates its meaning. And and covet in the 10th commandment is set in the context of not desiring anything God has given to your neighbor, but not has given to you. You got that? Over and over it's repeated, your neighbors, your neighbors, your neighbors. You see that? So desire is not being forbidden generically, as it's only right to desire at times, right? I was just thinking uh, earlier on, um, the Paul uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 reminds uh, men, as he tells Timothy to remind men, that it is an honorable thing if men who desire eldership in the assembly. That's an honorable thing. Uh, Paul again here, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul desired, he used that word, that all people should be saved and come to a knowledge of of the truth. He desired also that in every place men should pray. And we know very well every husband should desire his wife, but not his neighbor's. So what is being forbidden here is coveting, that is, desire in the context of, of failing to consider one's neighbor's best interest. That's what it is here. Or, or, or wanting that which belongs to our neighbor. Or, or seeking by devious ways to get that which belongs to our neighbor. That's what it means here, to covet. And so the very mention of your neighbor three times here helps us to understand what's being forbidden. Remember Ahab? He's a good example. King Ahab, he should have known better. He was a guy that was, uh, he was was a sinful man, uh, sinful to the core. And one of his sins that recorded in Scripture is he sinfully desired. He coveted Naboth's vineyard. Remember that story? He had a hankering for that. There were thousands of other vineyards in the area, but no, no, he had a real covetous desire for Naboth's vineyard. It was nice and handy. 
Was it wrong to desire a vineyard elsewhere that was for sale for Naboth? No. See, to covet is to have an inappropriate desire for something that belongs to someone else or to have an ungodly desire for anything that would take God's place as a priority. And that certainly was the case in Naboth's situation. So we see that coveting of this nature is not only forbidden, but it's also bad, real bad. It's bad in that it is linked to breaching of the first command. Did you realize that? There's a link here. You shall have no other gods before me, says the first command. And so to covet is idolatry. You might say, well, where did you get that from? Check out what the Apostle Paul says when he extrapolates this in Colossians 3 verse 5. He says, therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion. And then he adds this, evil desire and greed, covetousness. And then he says this, which is idolatry. There you have it. Don't take my word for it. Take the word of God for it. Covetousness is idolatry. That's how bad coveting is, folks. It is idolatry. So, so how does this humanly invisible sin relate to the first command? This way. This is how it relates. To covet is to deny God's providence. Okay? It's to deny his providence. You see, if God provides and supplies what we need and then we long desire to have something that he has not given us in an inappropriate way and an ungodly way then we are denying his goodness and his provision for us that's what we're doing we're saying God you haven't given me all that I need or all that I want and so that very thing that we desire, be it money, be it a house, be it a career, be it a status symbol, any of those things may rob us of our loyalty to him and then our covetousness, our desire becomes idolatry. That's how it works. This brings us back to the real core of this prohibition, doesn't it? And um, it's, unlikely, it's unlike any of the other commands. You see, obedience or disobedience to all the other commands are visual and tangible and can be regulated externally. You know that, right? But coveting is an internal heart matter. It cannot be regulated externally because its inward action is only known by ourselves and God. And being the last command, by the way, is not without significance because in it being the last one, it shows the very essence and nature of the whole Ten Commandments, every single one of them. And what I mean by this is these commandments are not just a mere list of rules like some civil code or that we have to abide by. You won't see this command, by the way, in any law books of Australia. You go and have a look at our law system or our constitution or, or go to the local council and look up all the bylaws and the, and the main laws, you will not find that you shall not cover. You will have reference to many of the others, but not this one. You see, these are instructions for God's redeemed people. They're our guide, our guidebook. There are the principles and moral values that we are to live by. 
Remember in the primary setting they were given to God's redeemed people? You can't enforce this 10th commandment. You can enforce the consequences when coveting gives way to actions. Yes, you can. But because this final 10th commandment is a matter of the heart, this shows that these commands are not merely a civil code of conduct, but the household instructions for God's people. It tells us that all these commands are all to do with the heart before they involve our actions. And folks... As I said before, God searches the heart and is concerned about the state of our hearts. You see, he's not just concerned that we covet and then steal our neighbor's property like Ahab did. Why? Because he gave us a command about stealing, right? Thou shalt not steal. He's not just concerned that we covet and then go out and commit adultery. Why? Because he's given us a commandment about adultery. He's concerned about coveting, period. So much so that he makes a separate command prohibiting its inner action. Why? Because he knows that it's from the heart that all behavior flows. Just like you parents raising children. Your main concern, can I say, here's a bit of parenting um, class um, as a footnote. Your main concern is not to be in the bad outward behavior of your child. You got that? Even though it can be concerning. When When your child picks up a cup and throws it across the room in anger. That is really concerning. But that should not be your primary main concern. Oh, I don't want to see him do this again. Oh, what if he did that at someone's house? That's not your primary concern. Your primary concern should be for the spiritual welfare of their hearts that motivate such actions, whether they be good or bad. You got that? So let's apply this a little to ourselves this morning. How are you struggling with coveting? Are you longing for a relationship with someone else's spouse? I hope not. But it can happen. Do you desire to have the respect and status that belongs to another person? Do you have a hankering for material possessions that another person has and you haven't? Do you have an aggressive, excessive longing to be in a different situation or a circumstance than you find yourself right now at present? If your answer is yes to any of those can I suggest you're struggling with coveting? God cares about your hearts, folks. He really does. That's why he prohibits coveting. That's why he makes a specific command about it. Let me illustrate this. Toyota has an advertising gimmick that we all know so well. The words accompany an elated person way up in the air. Oh, what a feeling. I guess most advertising thrusts, like most advertising thrusts, Toyota is trying to impress upon its prospective clients that until you own a Toyota vehicle, you haven't really lived yet. You haven't really got the best. You really have not experienced anything like what Toyota can give you. That's the thrust of their advertising campaign. In other words, if you want complete satisfaction when it comes to a vehicle, 
buy a Toyota. As you know, I own a Toyota. It provides me transport. It goes okay. It's reliable. Turn the key and it starts up. You know what? I could easily cover a Lexus. Or a Mercedes-Benz would be a lot better. Then again, what about the 10-cylinder Lamborghini that's just come out? That would be, so be so cool. The point I want to make here is that no matter what we have in this life, there always seems to be a hankering for something more. You ever notice that? That's how it goes. There's this inner hankering for something more. We can easily live in accord with the thrust of our culture and spend most of our lives sinfully wanting more, never satisfied and never content. Plain and simple, we are too often characterized by dissatisfaction to the point that we choose to covet. That's what happens. Folks, there is only one way our hearts can be completely satisfied. Did you know that? You want satisfaction? That is total trust and dependence on a person and that person is Jesus Christ and him alone. Jesus himself said, and he talked about this in John chapter 6 and verse 35, I am the bread of life. And he uses that imagery, you know, bread, you know, we're hungry and so we've got to, to, to be content with hunger. We eat something. He says, I am the bread of life and he who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will not thirst. And so what he is speaking about here is absolute total contentment and satisfaction in this life. Now, us believers here this morning, do we really believe what Jesus said in John 6 and 35? Do we really? You know, this is not just speaking about salvation here, I might say. It's not just speaking about coming to him and trusting him in, and then you carry on your merry way. No, this is speaking about an ongoing daily life as a Christian as well. Salvation is not merely an historic event, but it's an ongoing lifestyle. And it's a lifestyle where we continually come to the bread of life. I wonder if Christians, that's what characterizes us. It should do. It should do. Because look what Jesus has promised. He that comes to me will never hunger. He that comes to me will never thirst. He's using a a tangible thing to illustrate a spiritual truth. When our absolute dependence is in him for life and godliness, there is no room left for coveting when we come to the bread of life. I hope you've come to the bread of life in salvation and even as believers daily as we come to him. I hope that's the case. Let's have a look at the positive aspects, positive prescription for coveting. You know, we need to be clearly aware that covetousness is a dangerous sin. A dangerous sin. None of us are exempt from the possibility, and I would say we all in some way or other covet. You see, there's no sin in all the Ten Commandments more dangerous than this one. Why? Because it's hard to discern. It's hard to discern. It's dangerous in that it is a root sin also of so many other active sins. It's a bit like Paul says, says in the New Testament that the love of money is the root of many other sins. And so same here is covetousness. It's invasive. 
It's like a cancer that spreads. And you know what? It affects the whole soul of a person. It seduces the soul and, and, and causes us to focus our worship and our priorities on something that is not God or of God. That's what it does. It even allows a believer, a professing believer in Jesus Christ to profess faith in him and profess that he loves God, but in all reality it allows that there is this overriding covetous desire of pursuing something other than God. It's a terrible sin. So how should you respond to this sin today? If you don't know Jesus Christ, you need to have a saving faith in him. You need to come, as I said before, to the bread of life and to believe in him. And what happens when you trust and genuinely believe in him and, and for what he's done on the cross, as we remembered this morning around the table, is that he will give you a new heart. He will give you new desires. He will give you new longings that will want to glorify him and obey him. For it is Jesus Christ alone who can free you from sin and its wages, including covetousness. But what if you are a believer? What if as a believer you are saying right now, this is my sin. Hey, this is, I'm, I'm, I'm into this big time, sad to say. I'm struggling with covetousness. What if that's the case? How do you respond to it? Can I suggest the first point of call would be that you would call upon the Lord to give you grace so that you can be content with what the Lord has given you. Right? But I'd like to give some practical steps here that we can put in place to curb this ugly monster from destroying us from the inside out. The first step is that we must recognize the worldly push to be discontent. We all understand that living in this world, that what it is to be living in this world but not being of the world, right? We understand that idea. But living in this world but being not of this world, as that's a true believer, what this does mean, it means engaging in a spiritual battle. We have that in Ephesians chapter 6. And the enemy, the devil, has strategies that are so effective, folks, that cause us to be discontent. But in order to win the battle against covetousness, we must understand the strategy that the devil uses. And it's real simple, I might say. Real simple. It's the Toyota ad all over again. And Satan, like any good commercial, will create a trigger point in you to desire and to covet certain things. That's what he does. And he's good at it. A moment when you're down. A moment when you want to pay a rise and you think you're worthy of it, but you don't get it. He hits us when we're at our weakest, often. He wants you to be discontent with what you have, even if it means an extra mortgage, which you cannot afford, even if it means more debt, even if it means less time with the family, and go on and on, and so you covet He breeds the seed of discontentment. So folks, we need to cultivate contentment in every way we can in whatever circumstances we are. We really need to cultivate contentment. 
Because if we are discontent with what our the Father in heaven has given us, we are vulnerable to covetousness. Have you paused to think that the more you have, the more you will have to give an account to God one day? That's a fact. That's the truth. The more you have, or with what you have, you will have to give an account. Because we don't own anything, right? All we have belongs to the Lord. We need to cultivate contentment in everywhere we can. My wife and I, for many, many years now, and I think I may have mentioned this once before, we often keep ourselves in check, and uh, not only individually, but as a married couple and a mum, dad, grandparents, etc. We often ask one another, dear, or might even be a sweeter word than that, are you content with the lot that God has cast you? And we'll pause and we'll answer, she'll answer or I'll answer. That's a good way of checking. Are you content with the lot where God has cast you? Okay, we also must distinguish between contentment and complacency. You know, being content does not mean we become complacent in pursuing Christ-likeness. And that's a danger. This is a danger for Christians. You see, if you have a satisfied feeling about your spiritual growth, that is not godly contentment. Even if you come to this church, which we like to think as a Bible-teaching, believing, Christ-centered church, even and being satisfied in that and that alone, don't become complacent. Don't become complacent. I would suggest that that is not godly contentment. That is complacent laziness. When we are content, we do, do our best and we trust God to use us in whatever way he sees fit. Whatever way he sees fit. Our contentment comes from resting in him, not from doing nothing. It's a strange thing. We seem to never reach being content with the material things of life. But we are often guilty of complacency when it comes to our spiritual life. While we pursue contentment, we must battle complacency, okay? We need to make a conscious effort to kill coveting in its tracks. And we can do that by coming up with strategies for checking evil desires. And if there's any error in life, you know where, where coveting will have a heyday in your heart. Simply here. Don't go there. Don't go there. Do what it takes to be rid of it. In other words, if you're wrestling with specific evil desires, come up with schemes to combat it. If it means turning off the computer, turn it off. Write down maybe all that God has blessed you with. Phone your wife. Call someone you trust. Do what it takes to halt this evil desire taking root in your heart. We need to fix our desires on wholesome and lawful objects. That's another point. This is another way of combating covetousness. Did you know that the Bible specifically commands us to covet? You might say, oh, wow, we're not to covet, but here, oh, yeah, it does. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, verse 31, Paul says, covet the gifts. There we are. Covet the gifts. 
Desire the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He commands us that. That's not a if you want to kind of thing. No, no. It's in the imperative form. Do this. Are we going to be obedient Christians or what? We ought to be coveting those things created in us by the Spirit of God. We ought to be longing to see the Spirit working in us things like what? Love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. The Holy Spirit gives those things, right? We have the Holy Spirit within us, so these things are in us, and we need to cultivate them. We need to exercise them more. Covet their workings in our lives. We ought to have an extravagant desire to see these things rooted in us. But sadly the case is too often we go about wretched, miserable and poor and bereft of these godly virtues. Why? Why is that the case? The Bible tells us, James chapter 4, verse 2, you desire, there's the word again, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. In other words, no ask of God, so there's no have from God. It's because we are so into coveting what the world offers, we have no real heart to ask what the Father has promised to give. You have to desire that which is right, folks. That's what we have to do. We have to desire that which is right. There has to be a corresponding desire for that which is good and wholesome to combat covetousness. Finally, always call to mind where our true lasting treasure lies. I have a close relative back in New Zealand who is super, super wealthy. And sadly, that's all my dear relative has. And I need to keep reminding myself, this person knows nothing of the eternal, everlasting treasure a believer has in Jesus Christ. Folks, we need to remind ourselves over and over that our true treasure is not in the stuff or the abilities or even health we possess, okay? We need to keep reminding ourselves that. Our true treasure, that is our focus, is held in the hands of our Heavenly Father. Have you ever thought about that? Paul tells the believers in Colossians chapter 3 that he says, think on things above, not on things of the earth. There we have it. I think the words of the psalmist are quite appropriate here in summing this up. And I'll put it up on the screen for you. This is Psalm 73, verses 24 to 26. And he's giving this word of praise and, and confession and reminding himself where his true treasure lies. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Amen? Folks, is that your heart? Is that your heart? Is that the soul of your very being before God this morning?
The Ten Commandments, by the way, were not given us as punishments or as restrictions designed to control us. No, no. The Ten Commandments are given to set God's redeemed people free as they live their life in order to glorify God. They're designed to point us to Jesus Christ who alone perfectly fulfilled the law and now through his death for us because of our sin, he is able to set us free from the curse of the law, which is eternal death. What a wonderful story. And then we understand and follow this roadmap that has been given by God to us. Given on Mount Sinai through Moses. If we follow this roadmap, we will find an inner heart satisfaction that will never diminish and, can I say, never be equaled in this earth. May God bless his word to us and may our hearts be challenged and changed as we have looked at this series together. Shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, we do bow in humbleness before you and confess that covetousness is a sin that to some degree we have all been guilty of. Oh Lord, we just pray today that as we are challenged, if some are still struggling with this, they might get their hearts right with you today. We've already been reminded that when we sin, that we have one who is just and able to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, and that includes covetousness. And so, Lord, we come to you today thanking you for your word of truth, thanking, that you, thanking you that you are concerned most of all about our hearts because, Father, it's from the heart that all our actions flow and you're in the business of renewing hearts renewing souls, renewing our minds. And so, Father, continue in this work in us, we pray. We ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.